Good morning, Gregory Fredo here. Hope you're all well, uh, broadcasting from White Plains, New York. And, um, you know, just to mix some of our conversations up on the equity markets, uh, today's conversation, as you probably have seen from the emails, is, is really going to go around fixed income. And really one of the best asset managers that we believe are out there is Lord Abbott. Uh, Lord Abbott is a firm that's been around uh, for since, uh, what do we have there, since 1929, and over $200 billion in client assets, and uh, really a very strong heritage of being smart when the markets are strong and being equally smart when the markets are not. The speaker we have today, you may have seen, is a, a fine young gentleman, I can say he's young, he's younger than me, Tim Paulson. Um, the name is, yeah. there he is, the name, the name that pops up there is... Uh, as many of you may or may not know, Tim is the nephew of uh, the 74th Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Hank Henry Paulson. So I wanted to welcome you, Tim, and looking forward to just having a, a talk on fixed income. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I never expected to get into fixed income markets, but uh, the more I, and maybe I'm a little bit of a nerd that way, but the more I get into it, the more I start to think of fixed income as a driver of, of everything. You, you understand, you pay attention to it even a little bit other things can start to make a lot of sense. So it should be fun. Yep. So, so Tim, um, really, you know, when we talk about fixed income, we also have to obviously talk about the broader markets. Equity is always in the news, right? It's uh, the, the Dow, the S&P, the, you know, you name it, the Russell, you get into the European markets and globally diversification, but really what's least talked about is fixed income. So with that said, why don't we start off briefly just in general where we are? There we go. So, Thanks. And thanks for the intro. Um, thanks everyone for dialing in. Um, as you say, equity markets dominated headlines. Um, they're much more exciting. People can kind of get their head around why a company might do well or not. Um, but I think part of the reason people don't talk about the bond market as much is because they just don't understand it as much. I think the reason they don't understand it is because there's so many different parts of it. You, you hear about treasury yields, you hear about corporate bonds. There are a lot of other different kinds of bonds you can kind of break it into two pieces, thinking about interest rates with treasury bonds and then what's happening with stuff where you're not sure if you're gonna get paid back. I'm gonna talk about that, but at a very high level, as you say, this affects all of the markets. And at a very high level, there's nothing everyone on this call doesn't know already. We are now in a deep recession. Every week we're getting more and more layoffs and jobless data. Uh, you can turn on any news channel, you can read any newspaper, and get negative headlines. At the same time, you've seen stock markets rallying for more than a month now. You get a lot of questions about why that can be and what all is happening under there. So yes, thank you. Let's talk about bond markets. Um, I will highlight, we know we're in a recession. Nobody has any idea how long this recession will take, how severe it will be, what the recovery will look like can try to make the case that the shape of the recovery doesn't really even matter very much. And even just for thinking about past instances where you've had a really severe recession, think about 2008, 2009, where you had the market absolutely plummet through early 2009. And really by the summer, if you'd put money in then, you were up almost 20%. And yet it was one of the slowest recoveries in history. It also lasted for a decade. So, in some ways, the shape of the recovery doesn't matter much when you think about the equity markets. What does matter a lot is the response we've gotten from Fed policymakers, from Congress, because they really help 
investors think about what's the worst case scenario? What are my alternatives? And what's gonna be left standing when we come out of this? So I can highlight some bad numbers. You see the weekly jobless claims. Haven't added the last two weeks onto this. It will look even worse. There's my little secret. Manufacturing out of China looks terrible. We could do any country out there. It's going to look bad. And you know what? Markets have known this since March, that the numbers were going to get worse and worse. And there's no way to know if things are going to get better. But I will highlight that what we saw in March is something that typically happens in every bear market. And that is a point when everyone starts to panic and say, oh my God, I don't know what's driving this. I don't know how much further things can go down. I just know that I don't want to have this exposure and I want to sell. We're going to talk a little bit about what that shape that took in March. Sometimes that's the low point in markets recover. As we saw in 2008, 2009, you can see that acute phase that we really felt around. I don't know how many of you really remember it. I remember it vividly, September, October, November, when Congress failed to pass TARP and then did pass it, but things kept getting worse. And that wasn't the low point. So there's no way to know, but you can certainly make a case that, that we can get a double dip, things can get worse. You can also make a case that things get better, but mostly what we're seeing is that risk is changing hands. I'll just pause and make this comment. We can all read headlines. If you're reading about it in headlines, everybody else knows it too especially the professionals who think about this all the time. In fact, if you're reading about it in the headlines, it's because the people who focus on it for a living saw it, did something about it. A newspaper editor said, wow, markets just moved, we should write about it. And now you're reading about it in the headlines and you wanna react, but you've missed it. That's part of why we have financial advisors to provide the reality check so we don't overreact to headlines. It's one of many reasons, we can get into some of those too, but markets, are really important because they allow people to change their minds and change risk. If you have an investment that you decide maybe isn't appropriate for you anymore, or maybe your own circumstances have changed and you need to reposition your investment portfolio, that's when markets are working well. When markets are volatile, that's markets just saying, there's new information out there, what's this worth? And everyone needs to reposition. So having an acute phase like this you get it out of the system, you get people repositioning, that's healthy. Nobody on this call knows if we're going up or down from here. What we do know is that the Fed responded very, very aggressively. And there's been more. I, I was actually on a plane when I landed and it's like, oh my God, the Fed just cut to zero on a Sunday night with a host of other measures. At the time I was thinking that was premature, but was heartened that the Fed was being as aggressive. In hindsight, it was certainly not premature. The Fed had more information than the rest of us did. It's one of many reasons that we shouldn't really question the Fed too much. You can also see the Fed's taking their balance sheet up. You may hear a lot about it. This is just simply essentially controlling how much cash is in the system. We had a cash shortage in March. This is what the Fed responded to. And this is why a big part of why everyone got scared. So I'm gonna just pause here and say, when you think about bond markets, and bond markets are the debt markets, it's who owes who and how much you get paid for lending money. When you think about them, there are a lot of different drivers of performance. I'm gonna make this point, then pause, take a breath and hand it to Greg. 
just to ask some questions and guide this a little bit. But when you think about bond markets at a very high level, what we're doing is saying, how much do I want to get paid to lend you money for a certain amount of time? But what if it's risk-free? Risk-free means I'm going to get my money back with certainty. The value of that investment might move around quite a bit. I should have disabled this little thing. The value of that investment might, might move around quite a bit, but I'm going to get my money back when it's all done. When we think about treasuries, that's really what we're talking about. How much do you get paid for knowing you'll get your money back after a year, five years, 10 years? The answer right now is not very much. But bond markets are also about saying, well, what if you don't get paid? What are the odds that you don't get paid and how much do you get back if you do? And so we price that risk around. But we don't pay attention to it. We don't think about all the different borrowers and lenders in the market. And there are trillions of them. We can jump ahead here just to give you an idea. The bond market is bigger than the stock market. And this is just in the US. Once you start going outside the US, often the bond markets are even bigger. The reason it's so big is that every single person out there, every company, every small business, every real estate, mortgages, everything, it all gets lumped in here. This is huge. And this is critical to people being able to go about their businesses, their lives. If you want to take out a mortgage, whether you know it or not, you're tapping into the bond markets. If you want to go to a bank or a company wants to go to the bank, you're tapping into the bond market. And actually the bond market doesn't even include all of that. But this is a big deal. So when the Fed takes rates to zero, what they're really doing is saying, anyone who wants to borrow, it's not gonna cost very much. And then they just wanna make sure that the markets are working, that you don't panic too much about people being able to repay back. So bond markets actually end up driving stock markets. Again, we'll talk about why that is the case. Greg, I don't know if you have some questions here. Well, you know what it is, Tim? Uh, that's the point here. You, the bond market seems to be lumped together. I know there's a slide we have there that really shows it isn't just the treasuries, but it's, it's, a, it's a world. And um, part of that world is, by this slide here, is you're seeing there's areas like corporate notes, which are debt issued by companies, and then there's treasury, which is debt issued by the U.S. government. How about just quickly, just sort of high level, that it isn't just a treasury or a CD market. There's a whole family of fixed income out there that without having expert knowledge on an expertise in that area where you kind of are just relying on other folks. So can you maybe walk through this and just discuss yeah. the options out there because people are sitting there for years going, I'm so tired of getting zero. I'm getting zero at the bank. The CDs are getting me next to zero. So the, so the, so the Holy grail, right? How can I get better yield, better return, but not put myself at risk like the stock market apparently feels like to me. Right. Well, you know, some of the answer is that there's no free lunch. If you want to get paid, you have to take risk. But not all risk is the same. There are different kinds of risk. So there's stock market risk where things are going to go up and down. They could go down for years at a time. Maybe the company's prospects are terrible and you're never going to get your money back. Or there's the bond market where you have a lot of different kinds of bonds out there. So we got this little colorful chart to highlight it. These are some major asset classes within the bond markets. You can see at the bottom, the dispersion in returns between the best performing and the worst performing in a given year is just massive. It's much bigger and more in terms of the, the difference than you would ever find in the stock market because there's more difference between these types of securities. You talk about corporate bonds. That's the, 
you know, IBM or Amazon decides they're going to go and borrow a bunch of money for five years, 10 years, 30 years, just like the US government. And people are willing to lend them. They're going to demand more than they will from the US Treasury. And how much more, it just depends on how much appetite there is for making that kind of loan and that kind of risk. In general, you earn more in yield than you do from, well, you always earn more in yield than you will from treasuries when you invest in these. You take a little more risk too, nothing like equity risk. And over time, you outperform treasuries. In fact, the, the performance difference for taking a little bit more risk is really significant. There are some asset classes in here. You notice what is leading the charge in a lot of different years is high yield. Well, high yield is just debt from riskier companies. I've met with some of the largest pension fund managers in the world, and it's interesting how they'll start to be like, oh, I really don't like high yield. It seems very risky to me right now. We're putting a lot more money in equities. And I scratch my head and make the comment to them, well, you know that these are the same companies that you own in your equity sleep. And they just sort of don't make the connection because people think, well, a high yield company is a company that can default. Well, the thing is what we're facing right now in the US and around the world is the idea that, yeah, there are gonna be companies that default. There are gonna be individuals who can't make payments, but it's not gonna be a complete wipeout where every company defaults in part because the Fed stepped in and Congress stepped in and said, hey, this isn't anyone's fault right now. We wanna make sure that you companies out there, that when we do get to return to normal, you're still left standing. So the important services you provide are still available and the jobs that you provide are still there. In the meantime, for investors who wanna to continue to lend them money along with the Fed or whoever else, you get paid extra. So how do you earn more than the zero you're getting with CDs or with a money market fund or with you know, short-dated treasuries? You take a little bit of credit risk. And it can seem really uncertain, but it's actually a way to say, you know, I'll get paid some extra, but with a really high level of confidence that in one year, two years, three years, I'm getting my money back and then some. Hey, Tim, real quick, I'm going to jump in on that topic there. Yeah. because My strategy with fixed income has been to obviously – know go for high the highest yield possibly possible with um, you know with the greatest quality we can out there now high yield which as you mentioned is the lower credit quality it's kind of unique in this recent um, Fed inter uh, intervention that they have stepped in and uniquely I believe offers a backstop to high yield which uh, as many of my clients uh, have been, uh, I've spoken to is an area that we have re-entered more now than in the past because of that very reason. So talk yeah. about the uniqueness of that, that the Fed's stepping in and not only obviously promising their own debt is covered in the banks, but that they're actually protecting some corporate. Yeah, you know, the, the Fed dropped a, a real bombshell on the markets uh, in a positive way in late March. I think the date was March 23rd when they announced some direct corporate lending programs. And for those of you who remember 2008, 2009, what a, what a crazy thing it seemed to have the government come in and, and put capital directly into banks and do some of these other things, there was a lot of pushback. People saying, oh, this is not the government's place to step in and bail out these industries or these companies. Well, we didn't even pause to question whether it was a good idea. We just took it a full step further where the Fed is directly lending the companies and for the first time in history says they're actually willing to take a loss if for some reason enough of these companies can't pay them back. 
but it took it made the important step. And so far, the Fed's had to lend virtually nothing, because what it really did was give the markets confidence that if these companies needed the money to keep going for another month or three months or six months, it would be there. And just that little bit of confidence, plus the fact that the Fed flooded the system with cash, it's a separate issue, it meant that the money was out there for these banks. And there are plenty of lenders, pension funds, insurance companies, investors in mutual funds, who are willing to make these loans because they're good, they're good loans. You know, I can earn half a percent to loan money to the government for 10 years, half a percent a year. That's not great. Or I can earn three and a half percent to lend money to, well, not Amazon anymore. That'd be more like two, two and a quarter percent for 10 years. Are we really worried that Amazon's going to default? No, maybe not. So that extra yield makes a lot of difference. And then you talk about high yield, Greg, where, yeah, these are much riskier companies. They have a much higher chance of default. But now the Fed expanded that mandate and said, you know, we're going to even lend a riskier companies, high yield companies. I know I didn't think I'd see the day, but we're in that day here and now. There are a lot of things I didn't think I'd see. And that's given investors a lot of confidence that there are some serious return potential. And, I'm yeah. sorry to jump in. Yeah, if you go ahead, there was a slide just on basically the, um, the level of default protection that's out yeah. there. But, but also, um, well, that's a favorite slide there I have. Go back to that one. I love this one. This one um, really, it actually blends us into the next piece, which is a lot of individuals out there searching for yields start to find these interesting uh, opportunities, right? And they'll say, boy, I can get this 4 or 5%, 7% of boy, at certain times even higher than that. Um, but this obviously becomes a game of you're somehow smarter, meaning the individual is somehow smarter than the active management like Lord Abbott who is doing this day in and day out. So. Um, with that said, let's talk about the importance of having somebody like a Lord Abbott, you know, uh, uh, looking at the bonds and doing their due diligence versus, you know, uh, the individual thinking they have found the diamond in the rough that nobody else sees. Well, so there's a lot we can we can kind of do talking about that. Um, and, I'll, and I'll try and keep the, the case short. But if you want to think at a very high level, who loses the most money in the wipeouts? It's the late investors who come charging in feeling like they're missing out. And I can think back to the dot-com crisis when I was, or the crash when I was really start getting started in the business. And if, if you think back to 98, 99, you couldn't get in a taxi without the cab driver talking about the latest IPO they were flipping. We had substitute, substitute school teachers day trading between classes. Everyone was involved. And it was that last bit of money flying in, everyone thinking they're missing what the professionals had grabbed for the prior five years that kind of fueled that extra pop, and then they took a lot of the losses. It was the same thing with the housing market. The experts had been making money for five, 10 years. Suddenly, everyone got really excited. They all pile in. And by the way, guess who did a lot of the panic selling too? Because they're reading all the headlines and think, oh gosh, this could be bad. Not realizing Actually, all this bad news, it's already reflected in all of these prices. It's out there. So it's a bit of a long-winded way of saying you can't let yourself think you're outguessing the market. It's really hard for professionals to do. It's even harder if you've got less information and emotional pugs or, you know, 
peer pressure or whatever it is kind of guiding your decisions. You don't want to sell because you're scared. You don't want to buy because you're greedy. If anything, you want to do the opposite. But what really ends up happening, and this is, I think, what people don't understand, is that with stocks, you can go on to whatever platform you want. You can call your financial advisor, however you want to do it, and you can buy or sell with the push of a button because stocks are liquid. That means there are electronic platforms, there are tons of buyers and sellers, and you can pretty much buy or sell that stock exactly where you see it. But if I wanted to sell 10 million shares of something that's trading at 50, you know, suddenly that's a $500 million ticket or a billion dollar ticket, I don't have all those buyers and sellers. So now it takes a lot more kind of practice to do it and you gotta go find people to line up, meaning it's not as liquid. Well, the thing about the bond markets is there is no big electronic platform like that. Because there are, you know, something like 2,000, 3,000 listed stocks. There are hundreds of thousands of different bonds. There's no way to do this. So what ends up happening is you need to find intermediaries to buy and sell. And in times of stress, things kind of break down. You can't see the same prices. You can't just sell and get your money. So what happened in March? And I put this chart up here because I thought it was a pretty stark illustration. These different asset classes, commercial paper. I mean, this is where big investment grade companies finance payroll against you know, receivables that are coming in in two weeks just to keep things smooth and efficient. They borrow for a week or two. Well, you can look where suddenly the yields on commercial paper went against T-bills because the investors who would normally have tons of cash to just help float these companies suddenly were getting redemptions. They didn't have the cash. And these corporate floating rate notes, we, uh, I think at the extreme of it, the, the, the most absurd print I saw was we um, bought some six week to maturity Toyota floating rate notes, meaning we got our money back in six weeks at a yield of almost 12%. At the same time, the Fed funds rate is almost at zero. So there's very little that investors could, you know, the people who were selling it were selling because you couldn't just push a button and say, give me my money. They were getting outflows at the same time everyone else was getting outflows. This is a long-winded way of saying bond markets work differently. You have to be very thoughtful about where you're gonna buy and sell. You may not be getting the best price. And you can get extreme kind of distortions in the marketplace. That opportunity to, to earn a yield of almost 12% for almost risk-free money, risk-free paper, well, that doesn't come along to everybody. So if you want to invest in bond markets, it's important to be able to take advantage of these big dislocations that happen in times of stress and also to avoid the sucker bets, hey, this seems like a good opportunity, but maybe it's not. Or alternately, if everyone's panicked and selling energy companies, maybe I can turn around and lend to ExxonMobil at a 6% rate of return, because that's pretty attractive because people are just hitting the sell button. Well, listen, listen I, I think that really uh, paints the picture that uh, even in a high level fashion, um, shows that the bond market does function very differently than the stock market from an individual investor perspective. And it's really where you don't get a lot of folks out there saying, you know, I'm doing this on my own. Um, but, but with that said, let's go to a, just sort of a, a the, you know, the, the, the old canary in a coal mine, right? The, the, the amount of money that the Fed has put in is unprecedented. 
uh, right? We it's a dollar amount. We know that 08 was a, was a large amount, but uh, we also know the with inflation, the the, the value of a dollar is uh, you know not where it was back then. With that said, a question we get asked about is what's this all going to come out to? What what happens when the Fed keeps pumping this money in? And now we have the global economy happening, right? You hear these countries in Europe that you know the Germans, the Poland, they're they're actually giving a monetary policy there they're putting in place. Where are we going with this? What is our out? What is going to be the impact of, of, of this uh, potential inflation uh, factor coming in whenever it is, you know, if it's six months, a year, two years down the road? Where do you see that? I mean, these are big questions, and it's funny you ask it because I was just putting together a little, um, we, we put out a, a weekly market view uh, every, comes out every Tuesday, I guess, and I was just putting one together talking about that same topic. There's a lot of hand-wringing over the fact that the U.S. deficit has just exploded higher, that the Fed is pumping trillions of dollars into the market. And what does this mean? You know, does it mean we're going to erode the value of the dollar? And does it mean we're about to have spiraling inflation? And the numbers are massive. But it's important to keep in context as a percent of the U.S. economy. And you know, I think the scary number for me is before the financial crisis, the, the U.S. budget deficit was about 70% of GDP, so 70% of all the economic activity we generate in a year. By the end of this year, it's expected to be about 130%, so that's almost doubling. To put it in context, though, that 130% is going to be about the average for most developed economies around the world. Japan is running closer to, it's running above 250%. Well, Japan's been running 100 to 150% for 20 years, and the yen hasn't collapsed and Japan's economy, while it's been weak, hasn't collapsed. And we're not Japan, fortunately. We have a lot of advantages that they don't. But it also suggests that this isn't an, oh my God, we're about to blow up the world's reserve currency, or oh my gosh, you know, all the spiraling debt and bills we can't pay, um, you know, there's some round of hyperinflation coming. What it really means is that there's a bill to pay always. You can't just spend without paying, paying that at some point, and it's gonna come at the cost of future growth because some of that, some of the capital that you would allocate towards, you know, productive economic activities is going to now go to pay off some of the debt we incurred this year. And that sucks for our kids, but at the same time, the alternative, which was doing nothing, meant that the economy was going to collapse even more and may have ended up being even worse. So uh, it's not an easy answer, but it's not, a, not an imminent Armageddon either. So, so let me ask you this, um, you know, something we, we, I think we've seen it once, uh, it was a tail end of the 08 crisis, where the treasury went negative for a brief period. But we're seeing that now, especially overseas. So the, another discussion that's being yeah. brought up, how do you go negative with interest rates? Why, why on earth, God's, you know, God's green earth, would you go ahead and give the government money uh, and, and then they're going to give you back less? So, so bonds trade with prices too. And, you know, when you talk about a yield, really what that's saying is, okay, this is going to pay me a certain amount every year. And then I get my money back. I can get that at a discount. I can get that at a premium, you know, where I put $1,000 in, but I can pay only $900 to get that thousand in the future. Or maybe I'll pay 1100 to get that thousand in the future. It just depends on where interest rates are. All that negative yield really means is if that $100 I'm going to get in the future is trading at 103 right now, maybe I just paid an extra 104. And that makes the yield look negative. I'm not actually giving the government money and saying, give me less back. Now that, that's actually starting to happen in Germany and other places. It's happening, well, 
little known fact, the primary buyers of debt are either pension funds or other sovereign wealth funds outside the US who want to keep their money in dollars or they're required to, or whatever the currency is, or they're required to for regulatory reasons. Pension funds don't love buying treasuries because they think it's an attractive investment. They buy treasuries because they're required to by law. So that can drive a yield negative just because they have to own them and you get a supply demand mismatch, but it doesn't sit, there's no magical difference between a, something yielding 0.3% and negative 0.1%. It doesn't, the world doesn't suddenly change. You don't get some weird inversion of the, the cosmic powers that be. It's just a question of the price is higher than, than would make sense. But we see that happen all the time in other, other markets. Um, all of that said, it's very unlikely we get to that point in the US because the Fed has made very clear these negative interest rates in other countries have probably done more damage than help. Uh, maybe we're fortunate because our economy is still much stronger. Our financial system is infinitely stronger and we've been able to learn from others' mistakes. So it might be harder for rates to go higher because you generally need a lot of growth for that to happen, but it's also unlikely we get to negative. But even if it does, it doesn't really mean much of anything. It doesn't impact anyone else's lives on a day-to-day -day basis other than you're not gonna stick your money in money markets and earn anything anymore. Well, that, that's a great point because the reality of it all is um, that pops into the headlines all the time, right? You know, it's a, sure. It's a great immediate story. It's, a, it's something that grabs your attention. And we find that with a lot of the asset classes, that is the case, that the, the media drives the dialogue. You know, and, and, and I guess what this dialogue is about is that having active management diversified helps protect the investor in an area that they feel they don't want to take risk, right? Because they, most investors feel, my risk is taken on the equity side. I want to stay super safe on the the quote unquote fixed income bond side. So all that being said, right now what we're seeing and with, our, you know, with, with working with obviously your experts there is we, we feel that the ability to go to a little higher yield in that high yield market does add value to the portfolio because as we said, the bank rates and the, and the treasury rates are basically nil. You know? yeah. So what, what I wanna make this as a positive talk because obviously everybody's sitting there with the stock market and worried about it is there are distinct opportunities out there in every given market. And the fact that somebody like Lord Abbott has the size and has the inventory to interact with other dealers and brokers lets us be a participant in this area of the market. So with that said, we, we touched briefly on high yield, okay? High yield evokes, uh, you know, the old, uh, the, 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 the old Michael Milken, uh, you know, the, the junk bond talk. I want to sort of just briefly go through what high yield really is. It's, it's, it's people get scared, they hear the word junk. And I want to make people who are learning to invest to not be fearful of this area of the market when we have experts that are doing the buying and selling of this like we do in a portfolio with you folks. So can you, you know, having re-entered high yield, can you just basically give us, what is my fear if I go ahead and I go back to that line of, you know, searching for more, more money's been lost, searching for yield in the point of a gun, am I really taking on as much risk with the stock market than I am? Why am I doing that? You know, is, is a question I want to know as an investor. So you really, should, you know, you talk about risk and really we should think about risk and returns as a spectrum, right? If you take, it's not a binary, I take zero risk or 
total risk. And, and you know, there's all sorts of gradations in between. And you talk about something like high yield. Well, interesting idea about high yield. So what is high yield? High yield are companies that have a higher chance of default than investment grade companies. Every company has some chance of default. Anything can happen from random fraud to, uh, you know, how many of us remember World Common Enron, and there haven't been many of those, to Lehman Brothers, to a whole host of smaller companies that you've never heard of that have defaulted. PG&E last year defaulted. By the way, bondholders didn't lose a penny on that. They got all their money back. Um, so default just simply means that a company can't pay back its debt. When that happens and they go into bankruptcy, the debt holders get paid off. If I've bought the bonds in that company, you liquidate the assets or they go through some kind of restructuring, maybe they don't liquidate the assets, I get paid off. If there's anything left, it goes to the equity investors. So, so Tim, that's a key point, is, is a bond is what's called senior, senior subordinate yeah. to the stock. So for those that, that aren't too familiar with it, it means if a company does go out and they liquidate, the bondholders get paid first. We have seen, how I can't tell you how many examples where, uh, and frankly, we'll invest in companies that we think are about to default because the bonds are trading at you know, 50 cents on the dollar, but we're pretty sure that they go through restructuring and we're gonna get back 70 cents on the dollar because we have that kind of legal expertise. So a default doesn't mean you lose money, but and it does mean the equities lose money. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but importantly is I think, you know, this conversation, if, you, if you're not of the competent mindset now with, with all the things going on in the world, this is not to scare the, the thinking away from this. What is to say is it is controlled. And when you have, uh, you know, you know, active portfolio management, you're not going to find yourself over, over invested in these specific areas. It's why it is so important to maintain broad diversification. So maybe with that in mind, Tim, talk to us briefly about a, a typical portfolio makeup and how much would be potentially uh, invested percentage-wise into certain sectors, certain areas, and even individual bonds. So the investor can feel confident that they are indeed walking away or moving away from the quote-unquote guarantee of a U.S. Treasury or a bank CD into an area they may be saying, boy, this is uh, getting a little bit further out there. How confident should I be that you know, the folks managing the fixed income portion are not taking extraordinary risk in just how much money they're putting towards one of these lenders? Well, it really depends what you're trying to accomplish. So to your comment about treasuries, if the only role that you want something to play is give me my money back after 10 years with a little bit of interest, there's a place for that. But when you really step back and think, is that compelling? Do I want that investment? The answer is often no. On the other extreme where you're less sure you're gonna get your money back is high yield. But markets are pretty efficient. You, you, get, you take incremental risk, you get paid a lot extra for investing in high yield. So interesting stat, and maybe we should, could, we have material I could send this to you later, Greg, but if you look back over the last 30 years, the high yield market has returned about 95% of what S&Ps have returned. Almost as much, but doing so with way less volatility. So S&P 500, you've had multiple times where over a three year period, you were still negative. You've never had that with high yield. So high yield doesn't go down as much, it doesn't go up as much, it just throws off steady income. You lose some from defaults every year, that's expected, it's priced in, 
But when you think about this zero risk versus equity risk, it, it, it fits in a portfolio nicely. So what a portfolio manager can do is say, how do we get balance in a portfolio? How do we get some income, some safety, some returns from other asset classes that aren't tied to corporate profits? Maybe something like mortgage, the mortgage market or the asset-backed security market where you have things in it like auto loans or credit cards. The U.S. consumer. We could have the real estate market. There are a lot of different ways that you can get borrowing and you can be very thoughtful about saying, if we put all these together, we can get a risk return profile that isn't that much worse than the equity market, but it moves around a whole lot less. That's one type of portfolio. You could do another type of portfolio with very short bonds, where you can say, the path over the next year or two is uncertain, but we can have an extremely high level of confidence we're gonna get our money back in two years. In fact, because they throw up so much extra yield, you're gonna get your money back in a year, usually less, but even if things go wrong, maybe it'll take a year. So there's a, a, a host of different ways to kind of slice and dice bond market. I don't wanna, when I say slice and dice, imply that this is crazy engineering. This is what most fund managers do. And there are a lot of different ways to kind of draw these returns. It's just that they're not in the headlines as much and you don't see a little S&P up and down ticker every time you turn on CNBC. You do see something about 10 year treasury yields. Maybe you don't even know why that's important, but it feels like it should be. And it is important, but that's not necessarily what's driving your returns. I have a slide here and, and Greg, maybe this is too complicated, but just as a way to, to kind of frame things, we will always see companies default every year. And I don't wanna imply that, you know, again, that's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it just happens. I mean, already this year we've seen a, a number of small companies, many people have never heard of default. There will be more. But when you get stress in the markets, the market starts saying, gosh, sell, get me out. I don't wanna take this risk. And you can start, it's very mathematical in the bond market. You can start saying, gee, you know, with these kinds of levels here, we're implying and we reached this high lever, level point back in March, we're implying that half of these companies, of the thousands of high yield companies out there, and again, these are all the airlines, okay, well maybe that's not a great example because they're a struggling industry, but most of um, lots of little companies that you deal with on a daily basis. Heinz Craft is a high yield rated company. They were downgraded this year. Ford and GM are high yield companies this is implying that half of these companies, more than half will be gone within five years. You can say maybe that seems right or a lot or a little, but you can just see down below the worst it's ever been was if you put money in and the, you, know, you started the clock in the year 2000, right, at the, right before the dot-com bubble burst and you endured 9-11 and Enron and WorldCom fraud and a whole lot of other problems. Over five years, 28% of those companies have defaulted. So 50% would be an awful lot, especially when you think about the direct support that the Fed and Congress are passing. So it's, it's a useful way to say, not, oh gosh, I want to avoid default risk, but how much am I already getting paid up front for things that I know I'm gonna, are gonna happen? Maybe this makes a lot of sense, and it's a useful thing to have in a portfolio, particularly from a manager who's pretty adept at navigating where is their value? What's compensating me well for a lot of these risks out here? There are a lot of different choices. Can we be thoughtful and disciplined?
Well, that, 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 and that, that's, you, you bring up a great point there. And, and it's, it's sort of just repeating the same, but um, I have found in my, you know, nearly 30 years of doing this that, uh, you know, fixed income would always sort of be an afterthought. Uh, a lot of folks would say, I'll just go buy this bond and leave it there and it's good. And then we get into the discussion of active management. Now more than ever, with so many different asset classes under different pressures, the, the value of having somebody, a firm that's been around again since 1929 and managed over $200 billion, it is important to have somebody be there for you. I want to touch on one brief area only because I got a question on it. And it was the area of tax-free municipal bonds. Um, and I bring this up for specific reasons. Uh, you know, for many folks, they'd see those and they'd feel oh, pretty good. It's, it's a local municipality or, uh, you know, it's, it's a, in New York, we have the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority and things like that that are tax-free. But there's also national tax-free bonds. But a lot of these have been getting this brought up in a discussion point with my clients that, you know, I'm hearing some things where certain states are asking for help. The yeah. municipal bond market presents, I think, presently uh, a unique opportunity for those. Um, uh, well, give, give us a, a, a two-minute spiel on, on, on that. So, so the great thing about munis in terms of a, a valuation standpoint, or great thing or not, they, they always trade a little bit cheap in terms of what they imply if you're, if you're getting the full benefit of the tax savings, in part because not everyone is in that higher tax bracket and getting the full benefit, so there's just less demand for them. But also there's this constant headline risk. And I'm sure people on this call can think about, oh my gosh, you know, what if I've got Holland Tunnel, and I say that because it's near me, uh, bonds, and no one's going through the Holland Tunnel, and how's that gonna work out, or the Port Authority, or, you know, whatever local authority, not to mention you read these stories about New York State and New York City and New Jersey State and Connecticut and, you know, revenues really getting clobbered. And then you can think back, okay, well, geez, I remember Detroit defaulting. I remember Puerto Rico. I know Illinois is a mess. There's going to be a lot of defaults. And the fact is that we've seen over the last decade about $60 billion worth of defaults in the municipal market. I don't know if that seems like a lot or a little over the last decade, but it's a $4 trillion market. By comparison, the $900 million high yield market where people are doing pretty well this year actually, has already seen more than 60 billion in defaults this year. So that number is actually tiny. It gets a lot of headline risk. It pays investors generously. And I don't know what is gonna be on the other side of this financial mess. And a lot of changes are gonna happen, but I can say with a high level of confidence We've just broken the coffers of the future open. Tax rates aren't going down. Tax rates are probably going up. And the one asset class that historically benefits the most when taxes start going up is munis. So we can worry about defaults, but you gotta remember, these state budgets and city budgets, they have a tremendous amount of flexibility. They can raise property tax. They can do a lot of different things before they default. Defaults are actually, I'm sorry, go on. You know, I, I think it's it's an area that, again, it, it, to me, it, it kind of gets floated out there in the news and then it becomes a headline story. But the, the true story is there's a history to this. There's a history to the muni markets. There's a history to the corporate markets. There's a history to the treasury markets. And uh, in our firm philosophy is history is a better, you know, determinant of uh, the future than going ahead and having uh, a thousand different people with a thousand different opinions 
Uh, what I view a little differently now, we've talked about this amongst ourselves as a team here, is what's unique now to 2008 in our view, significantly higher levels of social media and interactive points for the client to get information from. It becomes, as we use the term, uh, noise, too much noise, and we always say we try to tune out the noise. And I think, uh, folks, you know, this is not a sales pitch on Lord Abbott. Lord Abbott just happens to be a partner that we work with for years and have found they do a, a, a more – a more solid job of giving us the proper information of when it's a good time to enter certain areas. For example, the high yield is an area where we're just re-entering uh, the, the national muni area, just re-entering. But importantly, we have a partner that's been around a long time, has this, the inventory, has the team like a Tim to help us best guide you. So, uh, you know, it's, we're about 45 minutes into this. Um, I didn't want to keep folks uh, on the screen all day. Uh, I do want to thank you, Tim, because it's you know you, you're 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 really working in an area that is not as sexy as stocks. You know, it just isn't. I mean, we could talk about the you know zooms and all the wonderful new stocks in the world that people think they should own, but it's important to stay focused as you do, as we've done with our clients. And I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for joining the webinar. Who's out there? I know we have a national audience today. Um, and importantly, before we sign off, uh, let's remember what we're doing here. We're we're a few days away from uh, Memorial Day. Okay. Let's remember those folks who are served, and, and importantly, um, you hear this all the time, but I cannot emphasize enough, let's thank those, those responders that are out there now. It's, it's not said enough. Amongst my team of five, we have three nurses. Myself, I have my wife Bernadette. Chris has his lovely wife Sharon, and Brian has his gorgeous wife Erin. And we want to thank them as being first responders and thank everybody for joining us. Um, God bless you all. And we will be in touch. And any questions that were not brought up, please email us, call us. We're there for you all the time. And thank you.